Welcome back to Following No Adonis from my podcast. This week is episode 138, and we are doing chapters 10, 11, and 12 of The Final Empire. Elliot, how are you? Good. Good as always. Further and further into the, the story we go, I'm getting more and more intrigued, which which is a good thing. Paul? I'm doing great. We're getting to talk about a, a variety of stuff this week. We have our first... Uh... I guess not as glum chapter where there's a little festival, a little ball. There is a party. Do you guys have two words to summarize the whole episode? Uh, Paul? My two words for this episode are espionage lifestyle. Okay. Uh, Elliot? On my end, I have gore and glamour. Nice. Let's talk about The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. All right, Elliot, returning segment from last week. Would you like to summarize what we have read for episode 138? You got it. So, quick summary for chapters 10 through 12. Some additional time has passed somewhere in here, because there's a reference by one of the characters that it's been 12 weeks since the original planning meeting. So, I think we're at roughly three Earth months. I don't know how time passes on schedule. That's an interesting question. 12 weeks, whatever that means. Vin uh, meets up with the crew at, like, a soup kitchen where they're recruiting rebels and Kelsier gives this big speech and Breeze does his soothing thing and they recruit lots of people and it goes really well and Vid learns some things. On their way out of that, Kelsier kind of thinks a little bit or does some brainstorming on where all the ATM is going. We've got some interesting thoughts on that. The crew reconvenes back at their, I think it's back at their hideout, but they they kind of have another team meeting and they decide that the recruiting is not going well enough they're, they're not getting enough people fast enough so they need to, to expand so they agree they're going to kind of divide up their forces and expand out to some other towns to recruit more people for their army to take over the world and let's see vin pipes up with a suggestion at one point on how to infiltrate the ministry because that's one of the other things they have to do she suggests that they sneak a spy into the acolytes that are coming into the city to join the the ministry. That doesn't really go very much further than that, but they they throw out that idea. Then they get news that Vin's old lair, the with the crew that she used to be with, has been hit by the ministry, and they go there and see a rather gruesome scene where all of that crew has been taken out. To, uh, to say the least. And then Kelsier even tracks down the, the old leader, Cayman, and sees a, another gruesome scene where he has been killed in a very specific way to send a very specific message. After that, we turn away from some of the gore towards a bit of the glamour, which is Vin gets to attend her first ball as a noblewoman. She's super nervous going into it. You think she's going to fall apart as she's walking in, but then she kind of gets it together, realizes that she can hide underneath the persona that she that she's developed for herself that they've built, and so she does really well, and she gathers some information. She sees two people 
at the ball that I noted specifically. One is her father, apparently, who's yeah. an obligator on the on the squad. And then the, the chapter 12 kind of ends with an interaction between her and Ellen Venture. Lord Ellen Venture, I believe. And that's it. Nice. Sounds good. Um, several different things to talk about here. But let's talk about the recruiting first. So Vin has returned and talks to Breeze about soothing and, and rioting. Breeze, Breeze is a soother. We've seen it before in some previous chapters. He soothes Vin into having Vin serve him a drink of wine and just kind of... He, he's very flippant about his soothing. He can do what he can soothe emotions. And then they use a team of soothers and rioters to during the recruiting meetings. Kelsey, are kind of, it's all very staged. They have these ska rebellion people who are kind of interested that show up to this meeting. Kelsey walks in and gives a speech. And they have this team of, all right, we're going to send the the blue apron serving girl in and all the, all the rioters in the room are going to push on like, yeah, you're really mad at the, at the Lord ruler in the final empire. And then we're going to send the orange apron serving girl in. And then we're going to soothe like, no, it's okay. Don't, you don't need to be scared of the final empire. You know, like that it was all very coordinated and a, they're really trying to dial into this Alamancy fueled, recruiting what did you guys think of this i had a similar question to the one that vin directly asks which is does this method really work long term you, you can make all these people feel all these emotions and yeah in the moment they're going to be like yeah I'm, I'm all in for this cause i'm going to do it what about a week from now yeah what about they they've joined up they've shipped off to who knows where to go train as an army does this does this really like inspire them to join the cause or does it wear off? And and Breeze's answer was a little bit unconvincing to me. He 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 mentioned something about, you know, yes, the emotions wear off, obviously, but those emotions are tied to your memories, which that's absolutely true. You know, I can think of examples where I felt very strong emotions and it imprints, you know, very strongly in your memory. And so he kind of used that as his justification of. You influence their emotions, which imprints on their memory, which sticks with them. I don't know if I fully bought it. I don't know if I'm fully bought into whether this is even a okay way to raise an army. That was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. Full on cheating. It is a, a wee bit uh, manipulative. If you want to use the word, you know, um, I, I think it's almost kind of comical. Like, I feel like this on a screen would be really funny to see, like, yeah. especially trying to see, like, the people's reactions or if they start to, like, wince with anger or if they're, like, oddly relaxed. I don't know. It'd be kind of weird. And, Elliot, that's a really good point. Also, on the, like, if you have strong emotions about something, it's going to kind of imprint on your memory more. You know, you think of, like, times that you've been, like, really upset or just really happy or things like that. Like, they're going to remember being there and being like so gung-ho about this like cause and everything and there's a lot of times that we get excited about just things and then it kind of wears off and you are kind of like well i know this is something that i want to do but like you know i used to be way more excited about it and stuff but i i yeah there, there does seem to be a recurring theme of 
getting people riled up and not uh, worrying about the consequences of them making decisions in those like emotional highs. So I do want to highlight the question. Is this morally okay to do to this crowd? Because Breeze, if you ask this question to Breeze, Breeze is going to make the argument of, well, we're just using normal persuasion tactics, but just with that little bit of a plus. So it's fine. Because if you go to a normal rebellion meeting, how well you how how well you talk and how well you inspire is going to directly correlate to how many people you get and you know how how good you are at arguing your case and Brees is just going to say well we're just we just have that plus one that, that's all that's all alamancy is don't worry about it we're just we're just you know we got that little bit of an edge so what do you guys think it's not a simple question because part of me does see Brees's argument there it's it's kind of the thing of like if you win an argument with someone because you're a better arguer, was that cheating? Right. If, if you are a more skilled negotiator and you win a better position in a negotiation, was that immoral? I don't think so. And so Breeze is basically trying to say, hey, I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm not poisoning these people. I'm just really good at influencing their emotions. And so I'm using that skill to the utmost effect. That said, the dude is using magic to manipulate people into doing what he wants them to do. I don't think there's any getting around that. Right. And so we, we are firmly in the gray area for this, probably bordering on the, I don't know that this is okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'll go ahead and make the step and say, like, I mean, given our, like, you know, real world understanding... I would say this is not okay. Uh, in this sense, like, for the story, I'm not bothered at all. I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know? But, like, in a real-world sense, it's, like, using powers that, you know, we think of... I think marketing is a good example. Like, so many companies and people use, like, so many, like, subliminal, like, details to, like, influence your thoughts. You know, there's the whole stuff with, like, colors and fast food, like, inducing, like, feelings of hunger. There's, I mean, just little details like the milk and eggs at every grocery store is at the back of the store, so you have to walk through everything, every yep. ad, yep. to get that the most common things so that on the way out, maybe you'll buy more. You know, there's just so many, like, subliminal things, but no one is, I mean, there's, like, attempts to do that, but in, like, the real world, there's no unfair influence over you to make that decision. You can walk to the back of the store, grab your milk and eggs, check out and spend, well, now eggs are more expensive, but you can get your milk for <laughs> a dollar to a couple dollars <laughs> and, then, and then leave, be on your way, not spend $50, uh, at your grocery store, you know. Um, but like, this is like, you are there and instead of you making your conscious decision to choose or not choose something, your emotions have been forcibly altered by some, or forcibly nudged. E even the nudge is like still there, you know, by someone um, to to join something that they want you to, that they would have built numbers for, right? I think I, it's hard for me to think of a way that this is like not kind of crooked, you know. But the uh, my, in my head, the the more difficult question is like, do the ends justify the means? Like that whole debacle 
Um, I know we talked about that a lot in our other stories we've gone through, but it's like the, well, if we're getting them to join this good cause and overthrow the Lord ruler who's bad, then isn't it good? And there's that whole question. But uh, I don't know if I have a stance on that. I would probably lean still towards this is not, not a good choice, not a good way to to bring people in, even if you th- believe it's for a good cause. And I'm thinking along those exact same paths as well, and it's justifying the means and all that. But this scenario for me is a little bit different than some that we've talked about before. Before we were we were stuck in the whole, you know, I'm going to justify these definitely bad things because in the long run, there's a net good. In this situation, it's not necessarily objectively bad. You almost could argue like these people need to rise up and rebel against the oppressive forces that are that are holding them down. And so there, I could see a case for you're forcing them to do a good thing or or maybe to phrase it a different way, you're you're manipulating someone into doing something that is good for them. Yeah. In a way, sort of. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know where I sit on it because I definitely do think Breeze has a point of I'm just better at manipulating people than than everybody else. But also, if you look at it from the Ska's perspective, it's completely unfair for this random Ska recruit guy who's just walked in. He has no idea that he's being soothed and rioted, and then he signs up. And then, you know, that week later, he's referring to emotions that were altered or even untrue um in in his memory so i don't know anything else from from chapter 10 there's a couple other things but what'd you guys get there was a brief bit on atm again we've rambled on this a little bit last episode but kelsier pauses and wonders where does all the atm go he knows somehow that there is x amount of atm coming into the city from the mine and that only he i think he says about 10 percent of that gets distributed out to like the nobles or sold or something like that so 90 percent of the atm and he even says 90 percent of the atm mined over the last 1000 years has been stored somewhere yeah or has not entered circulation circulation i have a theory about this are we are we far enough into this book for theory time yet? Yeah, of course. Oh, always. Okay. I'm going to chalk this one up on my imaginary chalkboard as my first big Mistborn theory. I think the ATM is not being stored anywhere. I think that they're going to tell us his whole plan here to break in maybe kill the Lord Ruler, steal all the ATM. The twist is going to be they break in and there's nothing there. And the reason why is it's all being used for something. It's not being stored. It's being used for something. It's all powering. I don't know what yet, but something. That's a theory. Are you thinking that ties into your, you think the, uh, you you predicted that the Lord Ruler is like a figurehead, not actually like a powerful being. Yes. I think this could very much play into my 
I don't really have quite a theory yet on the Lord Ruler. I'm sure I'm going to at some point. Right now, I just have suspicions about the Lord Ruler. I have suspicions that, like, maybe the Lord Ruler is not the same Lord Ruler of a thousand years ago. It's, you know, they sneakily replace him every 30 years with a new person who he, you know, wears a mask so he looks the same. Or, Or we've already seen another person who is taking the place of someone else in Lord Renew. So maybe the the Lord Ruler is just Lord renewing over and over, you know, on and on and on, ad infinitum. Maybe ATM is a part of that. Maybe they need ATM to power whatever magic they're using to keep the Lord Ruler propped up for forever. I don't know. I'm kind of spinning wild theories. I don't have enough facts to go off of right, right yet, but theory goes down. There is no ATM. I don't remember what the answer is here, but... I'm with you because the number that Kelsier talks about in this chapter is so high, 90% storage over a thousand years, and that's somewhere. You've got to you've got to imagine that that's not either not correct or something else is happening. Um, with either it's being like, shipped out somewhere or you know, warehouses full of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then why? At that point, why are you mining that much? Why are you not just slowing down the amount that yeah. you're mining? Yeah. Anyway, there's something weird but, happening there. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I didn't actually think about the time frame. I was just like, ooh, it's a super scarce metal that nobody really has. So 90% of it. So he must have like a a vault with with it, you know. But I didn't think about it being like actually like an, an impractical amount, you know. Right. So Kelsier and Sazed have a, a kind of a sidebar conversation about a, a religion. And Kelsier asks Sazed, is there a religion that includes the slaughter of noblemen as a holy duty? And I just wanted to highlight that phrase. Like that tells a lot about Kelsier if that is his goal and if he could di- divert himself and say it's in support of a religion then I'll follow that religion because that's all I want to do is, is the underlying uh, comment there. The, the references to killing noblemen has become one of those things with Kelsier that's like, it's almost like one of those situations where the person is trying to make you think they're joking, but they're actually serious. Like they keep making references. Oh yeah. As long as I'm killing noblemen, then I'm good. And everyone's like, Oh, ha ha. Oh wait, no, that's actually what he means. Right. Vin talks about, Vin tells him that a lot of noblemen are going to die if they start a, a house war between in Luthadel and like, as if that was be a consequence. Um, and then Kelsey kind of just smiles and says, yeah, I can live with that. And that's, that's the whole exchange. And Vin was expecting that to be like a counterpoint to what he was saying. And Kelsey's like, no, no, that's a, that's a plus. That's a byproduct, not a consequence. Anything else from chapter 10? All right. So chapter 10 ends with one of Ham's soldiers walking in and saying, uh, Cayman's lair was hit. There's, there's nobody left in Cayman's lair. And so then chapter 11 immediately cuts to them walking into their, their old hideout, their Vin's old hideout. And the scene that we are described if this was ever a visual adaptation, would be 
if this was a truthful visual adaptation would be very sickening to to look at there's some very gruesome detail in in this description what do you guys think of Cayman's layer uh here definitely definitely turn the stomach a little bit reading and and imagining what they're walking into i mean there was there was stuff in there i'm not going to describe it all but you know where it said like you know there was vastly more surfaces covered with blood than not covered with blood right you know you you, you you can't walk around without wading through it. And then, yeah, the rest of the descriptions were just like, wow. Which, of course, you immediately jump to, what did this? Yeah. Like, th this is way more than some Lord Ruler's soldiers' executions. This is a, something walked in here and ripped things apart. Yeah. Which we've seen now what a Mistborn can do, or even just a steel pusher. Yeah. If if someone with steel pushing or iron pulling abilities walks into there with a bucket full of ball bearings, they can do a lot of damage if they've got, you know, power behind it, which clearly they do. And it seems like all this is pointing at our, our steel inquisitors. Yeah, that's Vin is in their head of could an inquisitor even do this? Like, I don't know what an inquisitor can do, but it doesn't seem like one person could do all this and how many people were here doing this. Uh, she finds Ulif. It's one of the first characters that we meet in chapter one with Vin, and Ulif is like one of her only friends, and Ulif is dead in here. Um, and then they're looking around for Cayman's body, but they don't find it. But then they also acknowledge that, well, Cayman wouldn't have actually been here because Cayman's been exiled from the from the lair uh, by Kelsier's orders. So then they do go find Cayman's body. Um, and it Cayman was hunted independently. Um, and he's dead in an alley, like, I don't know, across the city somewhere else. That was That was another rather sickening scene the description of how Cayman had been dispatched of and Kelsier mentioned specifically that the method that they had killed him with that the hook that they had used to kill him was a method of execution I forget the exact wording I, I probably should have looked it up it was a method of execution saved for only the the worst offenders of of things specifically like those who misuse allomancy yeah and so that now vin and kelsier because vin follows kelsier and sneaks up on him they're both now wondering and i'm wondering the same is that a message to vin and kelsier to say we know what you are yeah it it is a question of is this to send a message, or did, did the person who executed Cayman actually believe that Cayman was a mistborn or an al or a misting? Because mm -hmm. um, Kelsier mentioned something about he must have admitted something while being tortured. Yeah. And so then that question is, okay, did he admit something about Vin, or did he admit something about himself and protect Vin? So. This is a difficult thing, and I, I like the question you asked, Elliot, of like, 
is this a warning or is this now they they've seen what the risk they're running is kind of thing um right now i'm leaning i i feel like i'm leaning more towards the side of this is just they're now discovering what the consequences are i feel like this is a very elaborate thing to stage and i'm feeling like if someone had enough knowledge and preparation to like do that then they would have been able to like capture Vin or do something else, you know? Um, but that's a really good question I never thought about. This is a very, like, brutal and graphic scene. Um, so I guess not for the faint of heart, you know? But it it's like... I don't know. It, it raises a lot of questions, which I think is really cool, just as a story detail in, in our story thus far. Because I, I know I keep comparing this to other other Brandon Sanderson things we've read, but I feel like we're getting answers awake at a much quicker rate. We're getting things explained to us. We're getting, like, we're understanding stuff. We're not holding on to questions for extremely long. There are obviously questions that are carry are going to carry on through this book, through the future books and things. Um, but this is a question that raises a lot of... Sorry, this is a chapter that raises a lot of questions. Um, which I'm excited to have, because it gets my mind churning... We get some great predictions out of Elliot, you know, that are all exactly spot on, by the way. Every single one you have made and will make is going to be exactly spot Perfect on. Perfect on it now. If you don't believe me, go back and watch all the rest of our episodes. Yes. Anything else for chapter 11? Just a really brief mention that I actually found a little reassuring. Vin asks about the Inquisitors, and Kelsier mentions that there's only 20 or maybe like about 20 in the entire final empire, which when I read that, I was like, Oh, okay. At least he doesn't have an entire army of these things. They seem incredibly powerful. I also realized that they, they refer to them not as people, but as things. Yeah. Have you noticed that mm -hmm. in the book? They always say it, look at what it did when they're talking about the inquisitors, but at least there's only 20 of them. So if we do have to face a inquisitor squad, that's going to be really bad, but at least it's not going to be 500. Right. All right. Going into chapter 12, we have Vin's first encounter with noblemen and noble women. She shows up at the ball. There's all sorts of great visual descriptors of this cathedral that she shows up at. And it is hosted by House Venture, which is, we've been told, is the most influential house currently in the in Luthadel. So it's hosted by House Venture. She walks in, a couple different things happen. What did you guys think of the visual descriptors we get of of the keep venture? I I want to I want to chime in. I really loved it. So <laughs> if you if you're hopping onto our our podcast and kind of checking it out for the first time because you're reading Mistborn and you haven't heard us for Stormlight, I feel like my recurring theme has always been I just want the action. I just want the cool stuff. I don't, you know, I, I of course, enjoy world building and lear uh, learning about the world. But, like, I I'm here for the fun stuff, you know. And this felt mildly like a more world building chapter. It's in such a fun manner of then is, like... A, a low ska and is going to this like nobleman's ball, like very regal, 
And so there's like really engaging to see what's going to happen. But as far as like the description here, I loved it. It felt like a like a it felt like coming in after to a warm uh, place after a really cold day kind of thing. It was like the depictions of everything is like stone stained by ash and ash falling everywhere and everything being like dirty and it's difficult to clean. And then it's just this like beautiful depiction of like walking in and like kind of a warm and jovial lit atmosphere um, and more of a finer thing, if you will. And, and uh, it was, it was a neat description that that was really kind of like setting you at ease, especially after the, you know, traumatic uh, scene of, the chapter before, so, uh, so I really enjoyed it. I, I learned something completely new, reading the description of this place. They, as they're walking in, there's these cool descriptions of these. What I'm thinking of are like stained glass windows depicting these different scenes yeah. that they're talking about, and they're backlit. These windows are by some lights that are behind them. And Vin is is kind of like, whoa, those are cool. And I think it's Sezed pops up and is like, yeah, those are those are lime lights. They they can heat up the the quick lime to incredibly high temperatures and it glows. And I'm like, oh, what magic is this? And I start like <laughs> you know doing some research on this. Like, oh, where's the investiture involved here? What's quick lime? Lo and behold, I found out after about sixty seconds of Google searching, this is absolutely a real thing in our world and limelights as they say are not only exist today i could go make one by getting some quick lime and heating it up really hot and it would glow this is like super old technology like back in probably not shakespeare's day but back in the old days of theater this is how they used to light theaters with these limelights they would heat up these little blocks of quicklime and they would glow brightly and you could light stuff with them. It's a real thing. I learned. Very cool. Did you know that Paul? A little disappointing that it wasn't magic, but it was cool. I mean, how is that I disappointing? Heard... Uh, wait, hold on. You're like, <laughs> dang it, this <laughs> is real. <laughs> Darn it. How is that disappointing? It's it's way more cool than disappointing. Way cool because I learned something and I was like, wow, that's a real thing. But I was excited to learn about a new application of magic in a world i'm discovering and lo and behold it's just a boring old yeah i could just go buy that at home depot it's <laughs> <laughs> actually hilarious um I, I think this is pretty cool i didn't i know i've heard of limelights like that's that's like a limelight i don't know that's just a, a something that i've heard of i couldn't have told you what it was um so so it's nice to actually learn that i'm I'm glad you researched it i was honestly googling that a second ago once you mentioned it as well just to see but yeah uh it's kind of fascinating and there there is it feels like so much more of that this world feels so much more relatable and like to to earth that i mean you know other than the fact that it's raining ash all the time and there's like spirits and mists and the aside from all that stuff um, gelatinous eating blobs metal. going around yeah. sucking up <laughs> corpses yeah yeah aside from that and the eating metals part um it's basically exactly like earth you know <laughs> um jokes aside it's neat to see something like that you know so I, agree. I, I i did not realize that that's really cool what about who she encounters at the ball once she gets her head her wits about her um she eats her meal 
And she picks her head up and sees someone. Elliot, you mentioned it earlier. Who'd she see? Yeah, so she recognizes because she's seen him once before. Apparently, Vin has a really good memory. This has actually come up a couple times. She just like says, oh, let me memorize that, which reminded me of another character. Is it capitalized? It is not capitalized here. I did notice that. I did look for that. It was not capitalized. Uh, She can memorize stuff fairly well. Maybe not quite as well as the other character we're referring to. But she she knows the face of her father, which we've gotten vague references, I think mostly vague references, to her her lineage. And we know that her father is an obligator. And I think it's said that her father does not even know she exists. Yeah. But he's there. I have no memory of if this comes into play more or not, but I am curious to see where that goes. And if she ever introduces herself to her father and I mean, obviously circumstances would have to be different, but um, if she were to do that, because we've had, um, we've been told that half bloods are not, um, are are frowned upon, even put to death. Um, So Obviously, circumstances would have to be different for for her to introduce herself to him. But, um, and I mean, we can even start to put things together there. It seems obvious to me at this point that Vin is an example of why half bloods right. are not allowed, right? Because of misborns, they don't want Ska becoming misborns, and so somehow that's tied to the nobleman bloodline. So Mistborns in the nobleman sector is fine. Mistborns in the ska world, not fine. Therefore, kill all those people. Right. Several young men ask her to, to ask her to dance throughout the evening. And she's supposed to like memorize who and what house they're from. Um, so she can tell Kelsier who's interested in Renew. And uh, so she's kind of getting her bearings of the ball here. She notices something depicted in the stained glass. Did you guys catch uh, one of the artworks that she talks about in the stained glass? Is that the one about the the deepness that she wonders about for a little while? Yes. And I want to talk about the deepness here for a second, because in the previous chapter, when they're looking for what's-his-face's body, uh, Cayman's body, they pass a statue of the Lord Ruler, and it says, it depicts the deepness about his feet. Um, and, and there's The deepness is described uh, next to his feet. And then in the stained glass window, it's there's also the deepness next to the Lord Ruler. And she, we've seen it, I don't know, five or six times now mentioned, and it's still not really explained. It's explained like as a fluid like as like water or something like that what are what are your guys's thoughts and specifically elliot's thoughts on the deepness and what that is and what do you have any predictions on that i don't have a prediction on the deepness yet because vin is still asking all the same questions i am vin is yeah confused why why it's depicted so kind of vaguely or formlessly she's thinking like if it was a monster, why not depict it as a monster? Why why hide what it is? 
I don't know. I can think of for, I can think of a lot of reasons. I I still have to solve my mystery about who the Lord ruler is first, yeah. I think, before I can even go to are these events of the past, this mythology, if you will, of this of this place. Is it true? What does it mean? I, I got to figure out who the Lord ruler is first before I can start guessing about the deepness. Gotcha. And then at the end of the ball, she gets up and wanders around, says that at this point has been excused to go find out what he can find out at the servants' uh, feast. Vin is alone. She walks up to this secluded balcony, and she finds who he eventually introduces himself as Elend. And it's not till the end of the chapter that we get a last name there, but he's reading a book. And I mentioned last episode about, I'm about to have a criticism uh, here of Brandon's writing. I mentioned last episode about how what really bothers me is when a character does something that I don't feel like that character would do. You've established a character and then they go do something that I don't feel is in line with that character. That really sticks out to me. Vin watches Ellen and he's reading a book on this balcony and then has one line of inner dialogue that says, I'm offended that I don't get his attention immediately. I should have worn a better dress. Why is he not paying attention to me? And up until this point, he's established this character of Vin is perfectly happy that this guy would not pay any attention to her. That's what she would prefer. Um, and then all of a sudden she sat at this ball for an hour and now she is disappointed that this guy is not paying attention to her. I, I'm kind of frustrated that Vin has an inner line of dialogue that says, this guy is not paying attention to me. Um, I don't think that's where her mind would be at personally. But what did you guys think of this scene? Would you, would you feel better about that if maybe our pacing had been a little more Stormlight style and this was like, the fifth ball that Vin had gone to and she's gotten a little more comfortable and she's gotten used to like the, the young men all coming after her. And then, all right, now she's been there a few times. Now she runs into Ellen and she's offended. He doesn't pay attention. Would, would that make you feel better? Is the shortened timeline playing into it? Maybe if it had been like repeated Ellen encounters, maybe like it, okay. Yes. I think that is true that if, She'd been to like four or five balls and constantly seen Ellen and still Ellen had not paid any attention to her. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe once she found out who it was and she's trying to talk to him to get to like get some information out of him. Maybe that maybe I would agree there. But so, yes, the shortened timeline probably does feed into it. Yeah. <clears throat> I see what you mean about it seeming out of character. Because uh, it threw me off because. I imagine she would be thrilled that a guy right. wasn't giving her attention. She was like, whoo, finally, okay, I could just sit, chillax, no one's going to ask me to dance, I don't have to do anything, that's exactly what I want to do right now. Um, it does seem odd that that's her first reaction. I can also, on the flip side, see how it would affect her, because it seems like every guy does pay attention and does care, and he doesn't so he, he right. he's kind of like an odd thumb out so it's noticeable for her um yeah so there is there is that aspect ellie what did you think of ellen i now that i'm thinking about this 
I think I bought into this reaction from Vin a little bit more than maybe Trevor you're 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 talking about because maybe this is actually partly because of a guess I made the very first instant this character showed up. I thought after we'd gotten, you know, five words of description of him that this could be Hoyd. And now that I think about it, I think I wonder if I was maybe thinking that because Vin seems to feel this kind of attraction to him. Yeah. And not necessarily a romantic one, but more of like a, you, you feel comfortable talking to this person. Yeah. Hoyd does that all the time where people just talk to him and sometimes they don't even know why this, this felt like one of those moments here for Vin. And so up till about, Maybe a third of the way com- through the conversation, I was like, eh, could this be our Hoyd appearance? By about halfway through, I was pretty convinced this was not Hoyd. The description doesn't really quite fit him. I think this is much younger character than Hoyd is, at least the Hoyd that we're used to seeing. Yeah. Which, maybe I'm spoiling too much here, but I thought this might have been Hoyd. I fairly quickly convinced myself that it was not. I do... I do have a, a theory, though, about Elland with almost nothing to base it on. Ooh, I like these ones. But I've, already thro- I've already thrown out one theory, so I might as well tack up another one. I think Elland is a misborn. Okay. And I have two reasons for this. One, it would just be fun. The, the one <laughs> nobleman character that Vin like, has a, a bit of a connection with, and she hates this world. She doesn't, you know, she's not comfortable in it, but but here's going to be that one person that she can connect with on some whatever level. Oh, shocker, later on, he's a misborn. I can see that coming. But two, a little more like, a little bit of evidence in this scene, some of the things about Ellen's attitude seem to me to reflect some of the attitude that you often see with people that are in a position of of power there's there's an air of nonchalance that kind of comes with being more powerful than those are around you aloof i wonder yeah i wonder if elland is so aloof and doesn't really care because he kind of operates at a different level because he's a misborn he's mm. like i don't really care about these balls i care about you know steel pushing and and iron pulling and hopping around the city and doing doing fun stuff I could see that playing into why he is acting the way he is, is because he's a misborn. That's a theory. Okay. I I really enjoy this ball sequence just because Vin finally gets to talk to someone that's not Kelsier. Like she's had a couple conversations with Docs and, and Breeze, but Vin is having this conversation and she's so far out of her depth, even as lady valette like there's no way lady valette should be talking to ellen that we're told at the end of the chapter um let alone vin um so that dynamic is really uh really fun to explore so i just enjoy this scene anything else we have i have some thoughts i wanted to share with you guys about vin's character and maybe her character arc of where it might be going. And this is this is less of a theory and more of like, I really hope this happens. 
this chapter with the ball was it was fun. I enjoyed it a lot. We learned some things. It was cool. But there was a moment for me that was kind of heart wrenching. Mm. And it was it was the moment where Vin is walking into the ball and she has that that moment. I, I imagine her at like the top of us of the steps. She's she's climbed up the steps to this palace place. She's about to enter the door and she pauses. And she has that moment of like all the eyes turn to her and she's like, Can I do this? Here's here's what's going through her head as she's standing there. None of them could see Vin. They could only see the face she had put on, the face she wanted them to see. They saw Lady Valette. It was as if Vin weren't there, as if she were hiding, hiding right in front of their eyes. And suddenly, her tension began to retreat. It's kind of the moment where she gets up her courage to do it, but I'm, my heart is kind of broken for Vin. The fact that this is her safe place, the fact that the best possible thing for her as if, is if she wasn't there, the best possible case is if no one can see her. Like the utter, complete, absolute zero confidence that Vin has in herself as herself is just, ugh. Like I want to go, I want to go cry because that's just such a, she has no self-esteem in herself. And that is just really hard to read. And I, I really hope, I really, really badly want to see her go on a journey where she starts to believe that who she is is someone worth being, that she gets to discover I matter and I can make a difference with who I am. I don't have to hide. I don't have to have a persona to hide behind. I'm important. That That's where I want Vin to get to is have a moment where she understands I I matter because she's she just has none of that right now and oh it's just it's sad it's really sad I I I think you did an excellent job of 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 expressing that Elliot I I I definitely see what you mean and that's a it's kind of been a common theme so far of like not just Vin she doesn't have like self-esteem it's like she's never had the opportunity to it's kind of always yeah. make myself as small as possible so someone doesn't notice me and kill me kind of thing and mm-hmm. and that's why I, I was so intrigued with this episode sorry this chapter because we're taking that level of like socialization where not only do you like like you have to think so lowly of yourself for like a survival reason like, how do you have a self-esteem, especially in a place like this, of an of an echelon, especially around like probably a lot of really confident people in this, like, in this social setting, and and that is like just really interesting. And so I I also like always want to see that. I always want to see the the insecure characters. Um, grow to become really confident and secure and and leaders like not just like you know leading people but like just exemplary someone to look up to kind of thing so i i always want that so that was really well well put part of the equation here that i'll add to when i don't know 
which chapter it is, but I think maybe it's chapter 11 or 10, maybe. Um, Kelsier and Vin are having a conversation about Marsh. And they they go back and forth. Vin says, oh, so you guys have never gotten along? And uh, Kelsier's like, yeah, I don't really know why. We've never really seen eye to eye, but we really should. We see we, we agree on a lot of things. We've just always seemed to bicker about something. And so then Vin says, oh, so so when does he beat you? Because that's what older brothers do, right? Like, she, that's what her older brother did. And so she just assumes, oh, so... And then Kelsey says, he, he never beat me, Vin. Like, that's that's not what normal people do. And Kel, and Vin doesn't believe him. Um, and that that's just the broken past that Vin is coming from, is she just assumes that everyone is out to do damage to her at some point there. It doesn't matter if it's a short term, I'm going to get along with this person in the long term, they're going to betray me. So I should just take that from minute zero of, okay, I'm going to be let down. Anything I get from that point on is a bonus. And that's how she approaches all of her relationships at this point. So. And it's heartbreaking. I, I don't know if she'll be able to go on that arc in just this book. Maybe this is like her arc for the whole trilogy. And maybe this is something I need to look for at like book three. But I I hope that she gets to go on that journey. I will be very sad for her if she doesn't. Yeah. Anything else before we do a little bit of Stormlight stuff? All right, Stormlight spoilers incoming. Anyone want to chime in on something? Okay. I you go, you go ahead first, Elliot. Yeah. My, mine's pretty mine's pretty short and small. I didn't have too much Stormlight stuff to really kind of compare to in this chapter. The only thing I could think of was it seems like we have fairly consistent theme running now of class versus class. We see this a lot in Stormlight with Light Eyes and Dark Eyes, and even like the class system of the of the singers and yeah. the listeners. Yep. And all of them, and the fused, and all of that. It's even in Warbreaker, with the kind of inner court of the gods, and then the everybody else. And then here we here we have it again. This this sort of inner circle of noblemen, the elite, and then the the rabble, the crowd. I'm 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 curious, and this is just an open ended question. I'm curious why Brandon is making this such a, a core element of seemingly all his stories or or most of his stories it's it's i'm i'm glad you mentioned that because my my point was similar as well so in the last episode trevor mentioned like oh if this was a stormlight book and he was like oh i'm not going to make this a segment and here i am adding to that we're not making a recurring segment it is true (laughs) we're not making a recurring segment but i'm going to for this one um if this was a if this was a stormlight book i'm thinking there would be, especially up until this point, there there would be more distinct points of view from like a higher class and a lower class. Like we see that a lot in in Stormlight, right out of the gate, of the Dark Eyes perspective with Kaladin and everyone, the Lattice perspective from both like the Dalinar crew and even Shallan somewhat, um, seeing the corruptedness. Okay, Sadius and like the whole 
whole shebang. Um, and here, like, we do get a decent bit of the perspective of, like, the ska and kind of, like, the lower class, I guess. But really, it's it's not so much about the class or the system at hand in the final empire we have our characters who we i feel like we have a good perspective of life as our like elements or like little thieving crew uh, but still not that much from that perspective and then like a noble perspective like i would assume that we are going to gain more perspective into that that's kind of what this chapter does exactly so i this is not a knock on that at all I'm just thinking Storma had such an emphasis on like bringing in so many perspectives and like really fleshing those out that this is more story like driven and not as much like seeing what everyone thinks about this we're just seeing what Ven thinks um, when yeah. we go through this you know something that I want to note as well uh, with what Elliot was saying that there always seems to be these ska versus nobleman um, dynamics. It also appears to also be tied to the magic system, either intentionally or unintentionally by the culture. So take on Roshar, dark eyes are seen lower than light eyes. They don't really know why, but we're told we're, it's figured out later that when you're a night radiant, your eyes become light if they were darker. And that's where the that's where that comes from. That's where that caste system comes from. They don't know that in modern day Voronism, but you can piece that together once Kaladin's eyes go light. You're like, oh, that's where the prejudice comes from, is because the light eyes are more, more are closer to the the radiance. Um, yeah. And then in this one, the for whatever reason, whether it's engineered or not, the noblemen have more mistborn than the Ska do. Um, so uh, I just wanted to point that out that it seems to correlate consistently and with uh, Warbreaker uh, the gods have all the heightenings and all the breaths they even feed off of I think um, the the people with only one or a couple breaths um, in the lower system so anyway anything else? Didn't see anything else. I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing there's gotta be stuff in here that's like oh that's, that's crossover or that's you know Reader value stuff, but didn't pick up on too much in this set of chapters. I wish I could say that they're that you're right. I don't know if you are though, because again, a little bit of meta commentary on when Brandon is writing this, he's way more scared of crossover and um, putting things in that you're supposed to know ahead of time, like he okay. is in Stormlight. So I don't know if there is actually right. what you're what you're looking for there. There might be later, but not at this point. Anything else? All right, let's reconvene next week. Thanks for joining me, Paul and Elliot. Farewell. Hasta luego.